It is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online from wherever life happens to have you. I'm honored to have you along for the ride. And we're in the third week of a series that we've called Roots that's all about what Jesus had in mind for his church. And as many of you know, in this series, we're taking a few weeks to explore the early years of the Jesus movement, like how it got started in the very beginning. And we're doing that as a way to sort of remind us all where we've come from, who we are, and really what we as the church are doing here. And and so uh, by way of review, and for the benefit of those of you who haven't been with us so far in this series, I began two weeks ago by asking you a question, and the question went like this. Uh, What do you think about when you think about church? Like the word church pops into your mind, what are the first few things that come into your mind? And then um, that first week, I identified a few things that you might think about when you think about church. But, but to get us going today, I thought it would be fun to share a little bit of what I think about when I think about church, specifically when I think about my upbringing in church way back in the 1980s. Like when the Gipper was in the White House. And if you don't know who the Gipper was, you need to check that out, right? Yeah. Um, but when I reflect back on my early church experience, uh, the first few things that pop into my mind, well, the first thing is, honestly, the bruises on my arm that came from my great aunt Hazel pinching me whenever I moved around too much in the pew. Um, and I know this won't surprise many of you, but I was a bit squirrely as a child. I, I know. Unbelievable. I've come so far. <laughs> anyway, uh, my counselor says I'm doing better. Yeah. Um, but I also think when I think about uh, my upbringing in the church, I think about the lingering hypnotic taste of Wilhelmina mints. Anybody with me on this? <laughs> this graphic is actually currently on their website, and I just couldn't look away. It was such a train wreck. But yeah, remember Wilhelmina mints? I mean, that you could basically tell how long a sermon had been based on how many mints had been passed to you as it unfolded. Like as soon as the pastor said, oh, and one more thing, here came another mint, right? It was kind of like a, a game my brother and I played. Um, and then, of course, there were the flannel graph boards in Sunday school and the percolator coffee and windmill cookies in the fellowship hall after church, right? Um, and so if you were having flashbacks, yeah. And then, oh, just one more thing, that special something that can only be described as church basement smell. Are you with me? <laughs> Once you've, once you've experienced it, it's unforgettable. Yeah. Uh, I'm telling you, the 1980s were a strange and wonderful time in the church. But, but I want to start there uh, because, you know, there's something that is just so important for us to remember when we start thinking about church. Like, none of what I just described was a part of the church in the beginning. I mean, of, of course, it's logical, right? It, but there was a whole bunch of other stuff they didn't have either. Things like buildings or choirs or money, or influence, or really much of anything other than the steadfast belief that God had raised Jesus from the dead. And that, uh, that simple, powerful, disruptive message, that is what those first Christians brought to the people of the city of Jerusalem in the early days of the church. The same city, it's worth noting, just outside of which Jesus had been raised And the same city that within which they had personally come face to face with the resurrected Jesus. Those first believers were eyewitnesses to a Jesus that was very much alive again. And as they began to share what they had seen, people believed and the church began to grow rapidly. In fact, in those early weeks, thousands of people 
came to place their faith in Jesus. And as best I can tell, within a few months, like 10% of the entire city of Jerusalem had come to believe in Jesus. It was a truly incredible season for the church. But, but here's the thing. This rapid growth also caused a significant problem for the Jewish religious leaders who ran the temple in Jerusalem. It was the epicenter of the city's life. And uh, the temple leadership had negotiated a somewhat precarious arrangement with the Roman Empire that allowed them to remain in power as long as they assisted Rome in keeping the peace among the people. And they sensed that this growing Jesus community might actually threaten that peace. And to be fair, their suspicion wasn't entirely unfounded. I mean, we have to remember a few days before his crucifixion, Jesus and his followers had entered the temple courts and essentially staged a riot, disrupting the temple's operations. In fact, many scholars would point to that as one of the reasons that the temple leadership had had Jesus arrested and then demanded that he be executed. Uh, that riot, I think, was also one of the many reasons that the first Christians faced so much scrutiny and, and even persecution at the hands of the Jewish religious establishment. And we started talking about that a little bit last week. Um, as you may recall, if you were with us, uh, in the early days of the Jesus movement, two of its most visible leaders, guys named Peter and John, were arrested by temple guards and ordered to stop talking about Jesus. Uh, but of course, when they told them to stop talking about Jesus, they responded, well, we can't because we're absolutely convinced that we have a message that needs to be shared with everyone. I I'm telling you, those first Jesus followers displayed a level of courage in sharing their faith that's largely foreign for many of us today. I mean, in our world, we're often so concerned that we're going to offend someone by talking about Jesus that most of the time we, we don't say anything about him at all. Which raises a fascinating question, especially for me. Like, what happened? Like, what changed? Like, when did the church lose its boldness? In fact, um, this week as I was preparing, I couldn't help but, but thinking about this. I mean, if, if the early church had been less bold, the message of Jesus may have disappeared. And I say may because God very well could find another way. But God seemed intent on using these early followers to share what he had done through Jesus for the world. So if the early Christians had been less bold, the message may have disappeared. I mean, and you think about that. Those first, if those first followers had been more concerned about offending their friends and neighbors than they were about sharing what Jesus had accomplished, it's possible we would never have heard about Jesus. It's, it's that big a deal. Okay, so now that, that sort of established, I have an admittedly ambitious plan for the rest of our time together today. Um, what I want to do is explore another story from the early days of the church, and I want to do that as a way to try to inspire all of us to be just a little bolder in sharing our faith. And, and I know what a few of you just thought, something like, not likely Bible boy, but hey, here's the thing. I'm going to give it a try because that's kind of my job, okay? So bear with me. Uh, let's get to the story. So let me set it up for you. Uh, in the months following Peter and John's arrest, more and more people traveled to Jerusalem to hear from the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And, and as a result, the city was overrun with religious pilgrims. And the temple leadership, who again were desperately trying to maintain their relationship with Rome, well, they started to get worried. And eventually they decided they had to do something. And what they decided to do was arrest 
all 11 of Jesus' original disciples. Like, we're going to go right to the top and try to stop this thing at the source. And as you may recall, the 12th of Jesus' original disciples, a man named Judas, had betrayed Jesus and was no longer around. But the, the, the temple guard decides we're going to round up those 11 remaining original disciples. We're going to arrest them. And then uh, they force them to spend a night in jail. And the plan was that in the morning, they were going to call these disciples before the Jewish religious council and basically try to scare the Jesus out of them. Okay? That, that was the plan. But during the night, uh, somebody or something came and opened the doors of the cells where the disciples were being held. And the next morning, when the religious leaders went to try to find them, they learned that Jesus' original disciples, well, you probably already guessed it, but they were back in the temple courts preaching about Jesus and his resurrection. And the religious leaders were furious. And so they sent the temple guards to re-arrest the original disciples, which they did. Didn't work the first time. Maybe we'll try again, right? And it's at that point that our story for today begins. So it's found in a letter that was later included in the New Testament of the Bible. It's a letter we call Acts, A-C-T-S. And it's the story of the early church, the actions of the first followers of Jesus. And in Acts, uh, an early Jesus follower named Luke wrote the following he told us the apostles, that's those original disciples, were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Now, now the Sanhedrin was a, the 70-member governing body of the temple. Uh, they were the group that was most threatened by the rapid growth and increasing influence of the Jesus movement. And of course, the Sanhedrin was presided over by the high priest. And so Luke recorded that on that day, the high priest confronted the disciples and said to them, and I love this, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. What name? Jesus' name, right? Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined, you have the audacity, to make us guilty of this man's blood. And you've got to remember, it's only been like two months since the resurrection. And the high priest looks at these disciples and essentially says, look, the way that you keep talking about Jesus, the way you keep telling the story really makes it look like we're guilty of his death. And as I might imagine it, Peter and the other disciples would have looked back at them sort of blank stares and thought, well, that's because you are guilty of Jesus' death, right? And, and then they said this, they look at the Sanhedrin and they said, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. Like we know it, we saw him. Whom, by the way, and we should never forget to mention this, you killed, <laughs> there you go, right, by hanging him on a cross. And so we are witnesses of these things. In other words, Peter and the guys look at the Sanhedrin and they basically, sorry, God squad, but we can't stop talking about what we've seen. See, God has done something that has changed everything and everyone needs to hear about it. Okay, so now check out what happened next. Luke wrote that when the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Just like they had put Jesus to death. Like the stakes were that high for them. I mean, Jesus' followers were threatening to disturb the peace among the people. And if the peace was disturbed, then the temple leadership knew that Rome was going to step in and they could lose everything. Like they'd lose the temple, they'd lose their power, they'd lose their influence, and maybe even their lives. And so I'm telling you, that day in the Sanhedrin's court, uh, there was almost universal agreement that they needed to do whatever they could do 
to stop the spread of the Jesus movement. And I say almost agreement because at this moment, like when the emotional temperature in the meeting was at an all-time high, Luke recorded this. He tells us that a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. In other words, Gamaliel says, hold up a minute, guys. Before we do anything to Jesus' disciples, I think there's something we really need to talk about in private. And so the disciples are ushered out of the room. Gamaliel turns to address the other 69 members of the Sanhedrin. And he says this. He says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutius appeared, claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. And, and he was killed. All his followers were dispersed. And it all came to nothing. So as I was studying this week, I did a quick Google search on this guy Thutius. And as it turns out, there's like no record of him outside of the Bible. But, but according to Gamaliel, sometime in the first century, he stirred up a group of about 400 dudes to initiate a, a rebellion. And Rome squashed his movement and took his life because that's what Rome did every time there was a movement that disturbed the peace. And then Gamaliel continued. Another example, he said, after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in a revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Now I did find a, a record of this guy, Judas the Galilean, outside of the Bible. Uh, historians record that around 6 AD, the governor of Syria, just north of what we have called Israel today, decided to do a census in order to raise tax revenue. And in response, this Judas the Galilean organized a group to protest. And the group that he organized is actually called the Zealots. Um, and the Zealots believed, based on what they read in the Old Testament, that violence was a God-ordained mechanism to resist injustice. And so Gamaliel says, hey, remember what happened to Judas the Galilean. Again, like Rome squished his movement because that's what Rome does every time there's a movement that threatens to disturb the peace. So Gamaliel's point was like in both of these two cases, the Sanhedrin hadn't gotten involved. And if they had gotten involved, it wouldn't have gone well for them. I mean, if they had been involved in supporting either of these guys, then Rome would have squashed them too. And if they had been against either of these guys publicly, then they would have lost some of the support among the people in Israel. And so Gamaliel says, listen, 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 listen. We've done the right thing in the past. We haven't gotten involved. We've just alerted Rome, and then they've solved our problems for us. He says, so in the case of this Jesus movement, let's not get our hands dirty. Let's just wait and see, because Rome isn't going to let this Jesus thing get out of control. And then as he kept speaking, Gamaliel said something that proved to be prophetic. So check out what he said next. He said, therefore, in the present case, in this Jesus movement case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Like, let them go. He says, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, like the other two guys we talked about, it will fail. But then look at this. He says, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And the implications of what Gamaliel says here are stunning. Like in this moment, he affirmed that really the only thing that could overpower the Roman Empire was God. And if there was going to be a movement that began in Jerusalem 
that overcame the Roman Empire, God would have to be involved. Such a movement would be unstoppable. And as it turned out, when it came to the Jesus movement, it was because he was. In fact, here's something that's incredible to think about. 2,000 years after Gamaliel's speech, the city of Rome, the former capital of the Roman Empire, has more crosses per capita than any other city in the world. And all of these crosses commemorate a single crucifixion that we only know about because of a resurrection. In other words, Gamaliel was right. If God was involved, resisting the Jesus movement would prove to be futile, and it was. But they didn't know that yet, and, and, but Gamaliel went, went over the Sanhedrin. What he was saying made sense, and so they decided, we'll let the disciples go. But before they let the disciples go, so as to leave like a lasting impression on them, like, hey, we want to remind you who really is in control here, the Sanhedrin called the apostles in and had them flogged. And I'll spare you the details, but this was not a pleasant experience. For, for the next several hours, the 11 disciples watched in horror as temple guards permanently scarred their bodies and the bodies of their closest friends. I mean, moving forward from that day, every time they changed their clothes or bathed, they would remember this moment. And I say that because I want to show you how the first disciples of Jesus responded. It was another breathtaking expression of boldness. Here's what Luke tells us. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. And I'm telling you, like, if you enter this even remotely emotionally... This is a moment where, as I'm reading the text, as a lifelong follower of Jesus, I want to get on my knees and apologize to God for all the times I've been afraid to talk to someone about Jesus out of fear of what might happen. This week I was like, seriously, if I really believe what I say I believe, what am I afraid of? Like they might say, no, thank you? Ooh, <laughs> Right? Or that they, that they won't like me? I mean, as long as I'm not obnoxious with my comments, I, how would that happen, right? But I just thought, how in the world did we ever get from the boldness and the commitment and the passion of those early Jesus followers to where we are today? It's like everything got so diluted. It's a stunning and disturbing cultural shift within the church. But that's how they responded to being persecuted, just, just courage. And moreover, Luke tells us that after they were flogged and released and rejoiced, well, check out what they did next. You'll love this. Day after day, in the temple courts. You're like, you gotta be kidding me, right? The religious leaders are there watching. I'm like, guys, maybe like the market? No, no, no. Temple courts, that's where the people were. And from house to house, the courts closed for the day, then we're talking to people in their house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And I, I mean, I'm telling you, I got to this point in my notes and I just drew a line across the page and I thought like, wow, like, what do you say after that? Like if there was ever a mic drop moment in a sermon, that's it. Like 
what do we do with that? And then as, it, as I tossed it around in my head, I thought, no, before I let you go, what I want to do is I want to suggest just a couple baby boldness steps for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And if you're here just kicking the tires, you get a pass on this. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I want to suggest just a few things that you might consider to just crank up the boldness in your faith just a little bit. And and full disclosure, they are pretty lame considering our roots, right? But we need to start somewhere. So just a couple thoughts to hopefully inspire you to action. The first one goes like this. You don't have to know everything to say something. You don't have to know everything to say something. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Over the years, I've had friends say things to me like, well, I mean, if I had studied and read and gone to seminary as much as you have, then, then I would totally talk to people about Jesus, right? But, but like I haven't, I mean, I, I grew up in church and I listened to, you know, some sermons most of the time or maybe most sermons some of the time or whatever, right? But I just, I don't feel qualified. Like if I start talking about Jesus, they're going to ask me questions and I'm not going to have answers, and this is, this is like really important. This is the most important stuff of all. I don't want to get it wrong. And every time someone says something like that to me, I always say to them, you know, that totally makes sense. But we have to remember that those first followers of Jesus really didn't know much more than the only thing they needed to know. Like they didn't know how to answer questions about the problem of pain in our world, like why would a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? And they didn't know how to explain all the strange things you read in the Old Testament of the Bible, and they weren't really ready to engage in debate about some of the things that Jesus had said because they hadn't heard some of the things Jesus had said. And they weren't ready to debate with people from other religious traditions, and they weren't ready to engage in a culture war against the -the off-the-rails sexual ethic of the Roman Empire. Again, the only thing they really knew was the only thing they needed to know that God had raised Jesus from the dead and that they needed to tell the world. And so to that end, they, they simply invited people to join them in a community of faith, a gathering, a church, where they could hear more about the good news of Jesus, where they could learn specifically that, that God so loved the world, not just the Jewish world, not just the Jewish people, but the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. In in other words, the first Christians wanted people to know that there really is a life after this life And there really is a God who loves the whole world and who loves them, who raised Jesus from the dead for them. Which brings me to my second observation about boldness. And it goes like this. Perhaps in our world, bold can be as simple as extending an invitation Bold can be as simple as extending an invitation. And and to tell you a quick story to sort of flush that out. Um, I have a good friend who's uh, long been a part of Keystone. And um, a few years back, like before the pandemic, BP, before pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, He had a new neighbor who moved to Grand Rapids from outside of the area. And uh, in the fall, they're raking leaves and they just get to talking. 
and he says to the new guy, you know, hey, now that you're in West Michigan, um, you, you know, you really should find a church. They call our town Jerusalem. We got a lot of great churches here. You need, a, yeah, you need a church. And a friend looked back and he goes, you know that, thanks so much. We're really not, you know, we're not church people. And, and my friend looked back and said, oh, that's wonderful. Because you see, my church is for people who aren't church people. We serve popcorn. You'll love it. And they said, that's weird, okay? Um, but here's the thing. They were just intrigued enough to visit the following Sunday. And now years later, they're an active part of our community. And, um, and here's the thing I just love. They've actually invited some of their friends to come to Keystone and to hear about Jesus. In other words, the invitation worked because that's how it works. I mean, it doesn't work every time for everyone, but from time to time it does work. And in fact, that's how it's worked since the very beginning. So I just got to ask you, like, um, who in your life might you invite to join you again at Keystone in the next few weeks in order to hear the good news about Jesus. And you don't have to invite everyone, like any of you are going to do that anyway. You know, like, I should put that in my notes, like, no one's going to do that anyway, not a problem. But yeah, um, but who in your life has maybe been through a season where they've run out of answers, and they're maybe ready to look up? Like, like who in your life has had uh, a transition of some kind, maybe a vocational transition or a trans transition into or out of a marriage, and they're just lost. And maybe, maybe they're just looking for some hope. Who in your life might you invite to join you to hear about Jesus? You never know what might happen if you go public with your faith. And again, we're not talking super bold, just make an invitation. You never know how God might use you to help them meet him. And, um, and I'm telling you something else. If you ever get to experience something like that, that you get to be just a small part in someone being reconciled to God. I mean, it happens through Jesus, not through us, but you get to make the invitation. Then, then if you ever get to experience that, then you will understand how your faith isn't supposed to be just a service that you attend on the weekends. And that's fine, but it's so much bigger than that. It's because you're part of a people who are called to carry this message to the world. And that is an adventure of a lifetime as we get to play a very small role in helping people find and follow Jesus. All right, we'll pick it up there uh, next week. But for now, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand uh, and I'll close our time together in prayer. And, and, and once again this week, if you came into here and, and you're like, that was, an, I never knew that before. That's really interesting. But I am just in a lot of mess right now and just need someone to, to talk to me and pray over me. We would love to meet you under the left screen right after, our, um, right after I dismiss. We'd love just to remind you that you are loved by the God who made you um, and that there is hope in Jesus. And so uh, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, 
This morning I find myself um, overwhelmed by the goodness of your gospel. I apologize for the times when I have not seized the opportunities that presented themselves to, to make an invitation to, for someone to just join me in exploring what a relationship with you looks like. But I celebrate you that, that you are good and that you desire to use us to help people in our lives come to know you. And so I pray this week you would heighten an awareness within us of someone in our lives who maybe needs uh, to make the journey back home to you. And I pray you give us the courage to just extend a simple invitation. We thank you that 2,000 years ago you sent your son as light in darkness to show us the way and then to be the way. And thank you for trusting us to share that message with our world. And so we bless you and we thank you and we love you. It is in the name of your son, our savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week.